Hello and welcome to a belated episode 144 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray apologising on behalf of Adrian Logue for causing us to miss the past two weeks by engaging in some new hobby he's found called work. Can't see the okay. appeal Don't of it myself. It. Anyway, we're back at the mics this week with plenty to talk about, and we're going to do that talking with a very special guest. John Huggan joins us from Scotland to chat all things PGA and more. Have you along in just a moment, but first, what I assume will be a contrite Adrian Lowe, Denmark, I think what, you said. You're putting all right? this on me. Well, yeah, but well, partly because we didn't record, which means we ha- we won't have an award-winning episode. That's what normally happens when you go away. Well, true, true. <laughs> you two were perfectly capable of just having carrying on without me, but apparently not. You are the pillar that holds the whole thing up, Logue. Uh, good to have you back. Denmark, always enjoy your – we'll get some thoughts on Denmark. You would have played a bit sure. over there and whatnot, I'm sure, so there'll be some interesting stuff to talk about. In studio here at the Sydney Podcast Studios Compound, Golf Australia Digital and Deputy Editor Jimmy Emanuel. Emmanuel, Jimmy, do you sleep? Huge week at Oak. I think I can see no, some content leaking out of your pocket there. I don't sleep, no. I'd like to. It's probably why I'm coming off a little bit of a – Post-major body shutdown, which seems to be happening to me regularly. Yeah, you and Brooks Kepka both had very big oh, I, don't, I think I've got more sleep than Brooks, <laughs> I'll be honest. <laughs> Let's cross the globe where we find the man of the hour this episode, John Huggan. He's been called a curmudgeon by better and more knowledgeable people than me, so I reckon we should be on safe ground to go with a man with a critical eye for the game. Huggy, thanks for staying up late. It's appreciated, my friend. It's uh, my pleasure. It's, uh, well, it's not that late here, and... and- as I was sent to someone just a few minutes ago, it's still daylight here, believe it or not. So it's a part of a Scottish summer is that uh, we we make up for the total darkness of the winter by getting long evenings in the summertime. It's one of the unexpected joys of your very first trip golf trip to Scotland is the sudden realisation on day one that it's 10.30 at night and you're still playing the 17th and there's no hurry to get to the 18th because there's still plenty of light left to uh, left go. Hey, I want to start with you. Let's pick up. I just wanted to get you some, some thoughts on Oak Hill. You weren't at the PGA. Normally you are at these major events, but I always like your observations as an outsider. What was your overall thoughts? There's a lot to unpack in so many ways from what was, I thought, thought an interesting week at Oak Hill. Yeah, it certainly was. Um, the, the anarchist in me, of course, was was kind of rooting for um, or barracking, as you guys would say, for um, Kepka to win. Um, but it, there was no need for any of my support. You know, he didn't really need it, as it turned out. I mean, my goodness, he's impressive to watch, isn't he? When he's playing well. I mean, the the the, the word that comes to my mind when when he's that good is formidable. Yeah. Imagine standing beside him on the tee, thinking, "Man, how do how can I beat this guy?" And uh, my goodness, he was impressive. Although he did get a break at the end, I think um, when Hovland had the double bogey from that from the bunker uh, on the sixteenth, that kind of decided the whole thing. But um, it would have been interesting, I think, if Hovland had made par there. But he'd still fancy Kepka to win out in the end. I think. Could you say the Hovland double bogey might be partly from that formidable 15 and a half holes of uh, trying to stand up to Kepka? I mean, it's got to take its toll eventually, doesn't it? You have a little mental crack. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, trying to trying to play against a guy like that who was just doing what he – it looked like he was just doing what he knew he needed to to win. Hmm. And that he, he probably had another gear yeah. if he needed it. Well, he also stiffed it on 16 in response to Hovland's mistake there. Mm, yeah. And that really put the dagger in. Like, yeah. that was a winning move. I mean, like not just yeah. not just taking advantage of Helvlin's error, but actually consolidating it immediately. When he when he's playing playing good golf, but any golf is one of my favourite players to actually watch, go and watch play golf. It's it's something else. You watch him on the range and he stands out. You watch him on the golf course and he stands out, and it's very very yeah. impressive. Yeah, indeed. You you make the comment often, Rod, that he's not so impressive when he's not leading because that's his whole shtick. 
like he's yeah, kind of. He's, he's a front he, runner. He's and, the man. He's when he's the alpha dog, he yeah. does that really well. Yeah, and if he's not the alpha dog, and that's what was so surprising about Sunday at the Masters. I thought Huggy was because Rahm's got a bit of that same thing about him. You know, he's kind of that raging yeah. bull, and you get in his way, you're going to get hurt. Kepka's mm. a bit like that, and it was interesting to watch that Sunday when Rahm just got the better of him in that department, and his golf game fell away. Yeah, it was. It, I mean, I kind of I was as guilty of this as anybody. But it was easier to sort of lapse into the kind of lazy narrative in the wake of that, how he played in the last round, and, you know, is live golf having an effect? Um, not only the the extra day, but um, just the the lack of competition or pure competition, if you like, because it's all a bit of a hick and giggle. I mean, I can't imagine that. I mean, you just mentioned how competitive Kepka is. I mean, he, he didn't seem to care that much about regular tour events when he was playing on the tour. So how he can possibly care about a live golf event is is a mystery to me. But um he certainly knocked that that whole thing on the head on on Sunday there. I mean that was a night and day. I mean he he and he predicted it. To give him credit. I mean he he announced that it was going to be different if he got himself into that position again. And it was you know, well, it was like you know he went from zero to a hundred compared with the Masters. I thought you were going to say he put paid to not taking live events seriously at Crooked Cat because <laughs> yeah, certainly <laughs> certainly made his presence felt at Crooked Cat. I, I I think though with those live events like like Huggy mentioned, PJ Tour events didn't seem to matter to him, mm-hmm. and he was he's the perfect guy to go to live. He, he spoke about it at the Masters how it was easier because he was coming off that injury. He didn't know if he was going to be the same, but. He knows all he wants to do realistically is win majors. Now, he's a competitive guy, so he shows up and he plays each week at Live. If he finds himself in the mix, that competitive juices start to flow when he goes, oh, here I go, I'm going to beat mm-hmm. you. But if he's going into the third round and he's tied for 24th, he goes, okay, yeah, good enough. Yeah. And, and yeah, he just won a major and this is forgivable. But, I mean, the preparation into this week suggests that <laughs> it's not high on his priority list that yeah, he goes to the same. magical Trump National DC with the world's mm-hmm. biggest waterfall and, and wins another tournament. Magnificent waterfall. A big waterfall week. It is waterfall week. It is waterfall week. Shadow Creek. Yeah. Best waterfall in Scottish golf, Huggy? Yeah, good question. Um, yeah, I'd be hard pushed, but um, there is one at Valderrama, another of my favourite. Of course, yes, yeah. indeed. Just uh, on uh, Kepka and Liv, he's not one of the f- Liv flag wavers, though, is he? No. There, there's a bunch of the guys on Liv who are yeah. really taken to that underdog role, the victim role. He's not one of those. He's quite indifferent about it, which I'm sure they would be disappointed. Some of his comments yeah. after he won were... I, I wrote a column on Monday because you didn't do yours, Rod, so I had to fill the gap. So... <laughs> Amongst everything else I was doing, but I, I wrote something about that. That basically he doesn't want to. He doesn't want that role. It's pretty clear he doesn't want that role. At Live Adelaide in his press conference, he just kind of sat there and went along for the ride and did his best not to really answer any questions. And he doesn't want that role. He obviously is happy with what he's done and is happy to be there and everything like that. But he doesn't want to be the guy that's out there beating his chest. Whereas Phil Mickelson, as soon as he gets the chance after he plays, that makes the cut and he gets in there and he starts talking about people. He knows what people don't know and he's holding people accountable. And Bryson DeChambeau gets up and starts talking about how good Brooks's win is for Liv and all this. Stuff. So he doesn't want to be that guy at all, um, which that kind of fits his persona too, really. Yes. Huggy, it's uh, the reality these days now, is it not, that uh, anything that happens in the world of top flight men's professional golf has a live element to it. We can't discuss golf without talking about our live impacts. No, you're right. I mean, uh, that was certainly the the thing that was going through my mind watching when Kepka, um, certainly on the last day, was the what are the implications 
um, of him winning, um, especially for the Ryder Cup. Um, who knows? I mean, he, he looks like he might be able to qualify uh, as of right, even if he does sort of decent in the next in the two opens coming up in the next couple of months. Um, he could be. They're going to be stuck with him, whether they want him or not. Whether you know whether he gets picked is a different issue. Certainly, that there's some doubt in my mind as to whether they would actually pick him, even if he does win another major. But if he actually qualifies, he's in. Um, and there's obviously implications uh, for what the rest of the team are going to think about that, and and the opposing team. I mean, the Europeans have made their position. Uh, pretty clear on now. Uh, there's going. There's absolutely no chance, despite what Luke Donald, Luke Donald humming and hawing over over the, the possibility at the moment. That that isn't going to happen. I mean, as I said, uh, I think I said on some on Twitter or somewhere recently, if if Luke Donald turns around and picks a, a live golfer, say Thomas Peters, who's the obvious one that you might pick, um, you'd have the, the the obvious question after that is, well, why is Henrik Stenson not still the captain? Yeah. Captain. And and Zach Johnson didn't answer that question very well last week. I can't imagine that they wouldn't pick him. I, I feel like the tides turn. So the, the difference, of course, between Europe and the US teams, Huggy, the European Tour owns the Ryder Cup on the European side, so it's the yeah. tour that can make those decisions. On the US side, whilst the PGA and the PGA Tour uh, have a very strong relationship, obviously, the PGA are not bound to outlaw PGA Tour players from the Cup. I'll be surprised if they do. That would make them, A, look foolish, and B, I think in America you'd get a reaction that says, hey, they're pl- as Faxon said to Chambly and stumped him on yeah. the live from, mm-hmm. they're playing for their country, not for their tour. And if you don't pick the best team for the country, you're not doing the best thing by the country. At, the, at this stage, to my knowledge, they're eligible because there was a bit of a Twitter back and forth from, I think it was the Ted Bishop, but it was an account called Ted Bishop saying... Uh, you've got to be a member of the PGA of America, which you get through your, your PGA Tour membership, um, and that that's not the case. But Alan Shipnut corrected that and said that the PGA of America, f- to his knowledge, uh, didn't have the sort of stomach to bar the live players with the antitrust suit that's going on at the moment. So they're not officially barred. Um, so it kind of it makes sense to me that They'll sit there, and if Kepka makes the team on points, they go, okay, you made the team. And then the rest of them, they go, oh, well, we can't pick these guys. You know, they'll come up with a reason for something. But Kepka's one, it feels, Huggy, that there's no animosity from those still on the tour towards him. It feels like DJ's in the same boat, gone to live, but no animosity from their PGA Tour peers, it seems. Yeah. That's not true of all the players, and you would think that might make it easier. As a captain, what you wouldn't want to do as you're talking about with Donald, is introduce a disruptive force necessarily where there's real yeah. feelings of spite between players on your own team. You don't want that. I don't think you'd get that with Kepka. Yeah. I, I must admit, I, long before Live Golf appeared on the scene, I, I wrote about this um, from the European point of view over if you're, should you be eligible if you're just European? Because there was a few guys, a handful of guys playing on the PGA Tour, guys like Martin Laird, you know, guys like who would pop up and, be good enough to win on the PGA Tour, but weren't actually eligible to play for Europe because they weren't members of the what was then the European Tour. And I I never agreed with that. I I think, as you said, um, they're playing for Europe. They're not playing for the European Tour. They're not playing for the PGA Tour. They shouldn't be. They should be representing their continent or, or country. And, you know, what it says on your passport should be the only determining factor over whether you're eligible or not. I mean, I've never understood this tour v tour thing because that cheapens it for me because 
they all, especially the Americans, they stand there with their hands on their hearts and look up at the flag. Well, yeah, you can't have it both ways. Are you playing for your country or are you playing for your tour? It's, it's got to be one or the other. Hmm. To your, point, to your point about Kepka earlier, about being popular as well, I mean, Rory, there was a bit of vision of Rory at Oak Hill going over and giving him a big hug, and he said, you know, I'll call you later, obviously planning to celebrate together. I think that would be the case if he's in the team, that he seems like a popular guy. Yeah, that's what I think. There are some you wouldn't want to introduce into the team. <laughs> Absolutely. But Kepka's not one of those. It doesn't feel like to me. It's a whole big mess. Huggy is the reality of top flight men's professional golf is that America is where it happens. There's been lots of talk about the strategic alliance between Europe and the US, the PGA Tour and the European Tour. Lots of people grumbling that Keith Pelley has sold the tour down the river and the European Tour is essentially a thing of the past or the DP World Tour, that he's ruined it, that it's now just a feeder tour. Hasn't it always been a feeder tour? Did not Rory say himself five or six years ago, it's a stepping stone? Yeah, absolutely it is. And but this it, the, the narrative on that has been that it's it's a bad thing for the European tour because they're going to lose their, you know, the top ten guys who are not who didn't have PGA tour cards. Every year they're going to lose those guys. But the other side of it is the PGA tour have made it much harder to get on the PGA tour for, you know, the not the absolute superstars, the, the guys coming off college, they're, they're going to be slipped in there. But there's going to be a whole bunch of guys, really, really good players, Americans, who are not going to be able to get on the PGA Tour. I can see them nipping across to play on the DP World Tour thinking, man, I'm good enough to finish in the top 10 guys who don't have cards and I'll play one year in Europe and boom, I'm in the PGA Tour. That's going to be the route, I think, for a lot of American golfers going forward. As ironically it was for Brooks Koepka, who started on the Challenge Correct. Tour yeah, and, before and he got John, to John Catlin's route to uh, PGA Tour, sure. maybe. That's <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Trailblazing hey, American. And John Sean Crocker. Yeah. Croker, sorry. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. Kurt Kitayama. Kurt Kitayama did that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the problem isn't yeah. the structure, is it, Huggy? That notion of stepping stones to the world's top tour being the PGA Tour. The problem is once you get to the PGA Tour, the lack of vision on the part of the PGA Tour to take the game and treat it better globally. That's mm, the real yeah. problem. It's not the structure. Well, they, it's they, what they do with yeah, it. That's what, I mean, God knows, I think we're all um, big fans of Eamon Lynch and the way Eamon Lynch writes. I mean, he's a beautiful writer, but he's never written anything taking the other side, you know, anything critical of the PGA Tour in the, in the midst of all this. I mean, the PGA Tour, it can be argued, uh, you could write this, I mean, that they've they brought a lot of this on themselves by being, oh my goodness, another 72-hole event this week. Oh, it's the same as last year. It's the same as next week. And everything was the same. And they, they kind of brought that on themselves. Forget you know where the money's coming from uh, with the Live Tour. But you can argue quite, and I have it with people, is that you know there was room in golf for something like this. You know, something like Live Golf. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it. It, it needs to evolve into something better than it is at the moment. But there was obviously a, there was an opportunity there for somebody to come in and do what they are doing, if you can divorce yourself a little bit from where the money comes from, and just imagine it came from Switzerland. This is, this is, <laughs> is not it, a bad is, thing. Is that any better? You know? <laughs> yeah. Here's the problem with money: it, it was all Nazi gold. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Doesn't matter where you look. Whenever you follow money, you find yeah. something dirty somewhere. But you, don't but you? you know what I mean. I there, there was definitely a there was a there was an opportunity there for somebody to do something. It was that, to, that was different, at least from the PGA Tour. The, yeah, professional golf was kind of ripe for disruption. We just got the disruptor we didn't want. Yeah. 
I'm not sure about. Oh, oh it was I mean, boring. You've written so it many is things boring. about. I have. But steady diet of stroke, sure. 72-hole stroke but, play. But, and, and it doesn't okay. get interesting until that last nine holes. You can make a make a, a case that yeah. the TV deal should be just nine holes, like just that last nine holes. Oh, you're touching on something interesting yeah. there. But, but, but for all of that, the reality is who would you have looked at before Liv came along and said, there is legitimately somebody who could afford to try to dis- oh, disrupt yeah, professional well, golf? And so it's not practical. Yeah. It's Santa stuff. Yeah, it's ripe for disruption, but let's be frank, and this was the PGA Tour's attitude, who's got the money? We run the show, and nobody's got enough money to challenge us. So, yeah, the, it, And it's taken a lot of money. Oh, staggering <laughs> like, amount of money. And I know the Liv that, event- that's was, only attracted a, like a handful of yeah, very yeah. top players. Look, the Liv event in Adelaide was hugely popular, and people are right behind it. There's a lot of people who have gone that next step and said, well, Liv is going to be the saviour of golf. The truth about that tournament is it's completely unaffordable in this country under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. And that, at some point, is going to be a factor. And at that point, Liv might well stop, start saying, do you know what? We can't afford to go there. We don't make a return. So oh, they're yeah. in a phase at the moment where they're collecting goodwill and those sorts of things. That's very smart of them. And they did a fabulous job of doing that in Adelaide. But there's no way that tournament was affordable in Australia. It hasn't been for decades, no. that sort of talent. Yeah. And yeah, that's not going to change. The, the, biggest problem, the biggest problem right now, as I see it anyway, and I've said this to Lee West with his face, is that I don't care. Yeah. No. About live events, I, d- I don't care who wins. I have no idea if you if you asked me who won live events, I'd maybe come up with three names, and I wouldn't be able to tell you where they won. I mean, that's their biggest problem is getting people to care. It doesn't mean anything at the moment, not a thing. That's that's my argument for Adelaide having been there and all those people. I'd, I'd said to Adam Pengilly, we should go around and vox pop people wearing team hats and say who's on the team. Yeah. And I guarantee you most would be able to name two and struggle for a third and definitely not a fourth. And if they come back to Adelaide next year, you walk around the first couple of days and say, who won here last year? And they won't be able to tell you. you. Actually, who did win? Taylor Gooch. I mean, and this is the thing. I, I, I spoke to Lee Westwood on the Sunday there about, you know, trying to shape that, is this an exhibition sort of story? And he said well, he doesn't like that. And it, well, no, it, it wasn't. It wasn't. Is in an exhibition, but you know, blah blah. And he said, "Oh, you know, it feels the same as competing in big events." And you have to take them at their word and say, "Okay," but it doesn't feel the same for me as covering a big event. So uh, I've been around and I, I know what those feel like, and that's what it, it feels empty to me. So, and it, it, the whole thing has served to really elevate the actual big events, like the majors have become more important Absolutely. than ever. Absolutely. The, the and majors fascinating are, and engaging. The majors are becoming the only thing people are going to genuinely care about, yeah. unless you're a hard-out writer of one of the tours that you know gets on Twitter every day and tells about how good one or the other is. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, do you just want to remind Huggy about a particular win at a particular venue? He can't remember some of the live ones. Surely we haven't forgotten Crooked Cat already, Cro- have we? Brooks Kepler won at Crooked Cat. Yeah. <laughs> Crooked yeah. Cat home to... Uh, native Heather. Florida Heather. Florida Heather. Yeah. Florida Heather. <laughs> yeah. She also yeah. works down at a local bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've seen one shot of those events. I've, it, it's too difficult for me. I'm not the most technically minded, as Rod will confirm. And Confirmed. It's, it's too hard. It's just too hard to find it. I can't do it. Yeah, they're all solvable problems. But, uh, the interesting time for me between you know, with the Live and the PGA Tour thing is going to come next year when the PGA Tour has to keep finding the money for these designated events. Mm-hmm. At this stage, we don't know where it's come from, but it's pretty obvious that it hasn't come from the sponsors of those events. You don't announce in February that you're going to have a designated event in March and have the sponsors say, yeah, here's an extra 15 mil to make that happen. I'm not convinced they're going to be able to keep selling that. 
I don't think that's particularly marketable, and I don't think they're going to find well, it's a fetch. How many? Seventeen total. Four of those are majors. Is, is that yeah. right? So thirteen tournaments on the PGA Tour schedule where the sponsors are prepared to put up mm. four times as much money. Nearly. It seems like a lot of this is all propped up by the this Very. colossus of a sponsor they've got with FedEx. And let's and be, let's be real, how many FedExes are there out there? That's exactly right. I mean, yeah. Even when that contract expires, what are they going to do about yeah. that? Yeah. But they, well, which is the point the FedEx, Nicholson's the, made, the isn't FedEx it? FedEx might jump. I mean, they've they got a lot of dealings it. with the Saudis, the FedEx, yeah. so you, you never know what they might do. <laughs> and these are some of the points Mickelson made, were they not, Huggy? To you, before Liv even kicked off when it was all in the pre-stages, was that the PGA Tour is hoarding all this money. And Mickelson's point mm. was that should be going to the players. You know, why can't I get access to footage of my highlights and sell them to make my own money? They're using that money to prop up the tour. That is a very short-term strategy. That's that bet yeah. the company point that yeah. you talk about, mm. Logue, where they've just taken everything they've got in the bank, so we're going to bet on this for two or three years and see if we can out-money them just for two or three yeah, years, and then we'll win. Try and ride it out. Yeah, for sure. and that's a day. And they're going to have they're going to have just as hard a time finding sponsors for the other tournaments. Well, of course, the ones well, that's that right. aren't elevated. That's right. I mean, that might be an even harder job. Yep. You know. Well, Which they've is, lost they've lost Honda and AT and T, and that's a huge loss for. Yeah, you know, these are companies that spend a lot of money in golf. AT and T is one of Jordan Spieth's major sponsors. These are companies with serious kind of golf divisions, you'd call it. Um, walking away from tour events. So they're not going to go sponsor live events, but they're just not going to spend the money. No. Well, I don't think the live model is to have event sponsors, is it so much? Isn't the whole if AT&T the went to live yeah, golf and said, we'll give you $20 million, it would be called the AT&T T- T- live golf Adelaide, Adelaide event. At Crooked Cat. At Crooked Cat. <laughs> <laughs> Presented by Florida Heather. <laughs> <laughs> dear, dear, pardon me. Yeah. That's a peak, is it not, Huggy? And this is the point I think people miss with the whole European tour, this narrative that, you know, that they've ruined it and all the rest of it. It's almost impossible to compete with the PGA Tour in the international market because if you go to a sponsor in Europe and say, we want you to sponsor a golf tournament, they say, who's playing? And you don't have those PGA Tour stars who are the global stars. Very hard sell. Yeah, any chance that the European Tour, um, DP World Tour, was ever going to challenge seriously the, the PGA Tour, that, that opportunity, if there wasn't an opportunity, was missed in the mid-80s when the five or six best players in the world were all European, mm-hmm. basically. The Seve, Faldo, Woosnam, Lyle, Langer group. Uh, that was the time where if they'd all gotten together and said, right, um, we'll play every week in the, on the European tour and go out and get find the sponsors, that was their chance. Uh, that's long gone. That was if there was ever if it was ever going to happen, it was going to happen then, and it didn't. No. Here's a question, Huggy. If the European tour suddenly suddenly somehow managed to exactly mirror the PGA tour in money and number of tournaments, mm-hmm. etc. Do you reckon 50% of the world's best players would go to Europe and play? I don't. I think part of the appeal of America for top players is, like Rory, you go set up in Florida and that's it. You get on your private jet, you go there and you come home, go there and come home. In Europe, you want to play in Europe, different countries, different currencies, different languages, different food. Different. It's much more difficult. The truth is it's the players as much as anybody who's driving the PGA Tour as the place to play. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the argument between standard of living and quality of life. If standard of living is your priority, you'd stay on the PGA Tour. And if quality of life was number one, you'd play on the European Tour and then, and see all these wonderful cities. And cultures oh, golfers are interested in looking at wonderful cities. Well, <laughs> you know. there, there are some. There, there are a few, but not many. But And they're far outnumbered. Your point is well made. that They're way outnumbered by the, the guys who want to stay in the Courtyard Marriott down the road. F1 manages to be a European-centric top-tier 
that's its root sports story, isn't it? thing. Because yeah. America had its own yeah. motor racing but, sort of class. But it's not – I think, to your point, the the best drivers in the world aspire to get onto that circuit and it's – I mean, they've got a choice with the IndyCar. They can they can go to that. Do they? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know anything about motor They don't racing. make as much money in IndyCar. Not, not as much, no. Yeah, I don't think that's equivalent. I mean, it's it's it, you could say it's the same about no, it's going, going to America. Soccer, but they, going they to America was in Monaco, a, a, like, a big thing for F one to. Oh, we're going to go and race in America. True. That was a late of, addition. Whole yeah. point of drive to survive. Think, yeah. I don't think all of those those drivers, even if you had like fifty percent of the races in America, I don't think they're going to move out of Monaco and go live in Florida. Yeah, like, there's something no. cultural about that. You could make the same arguments about football, couldn't you? Or soccer, as we call it here in Australia. <laughs> it's never really taken off hugely in America. No, that's true. What, do we had one big European star? Was it Beckham who went to Yeah, he America? owned one of the teams there, yeah. yeah. There's yeah. been a few now. It's it, the MSL, the Major League Soccer, MLS, I should say, is, um, is building. Um, Messi's never going there, is he? No, he's going to go to Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia like, yeah, like exactly. Ronaldo and all the cash, yeah. Yeah, indeed. So, yeah, look, it's interesting. That narrative's a bit annoying to me, Huggy, because it really ignores the realities of how world golf works, Whether leaving aside if one of That's how world golf works. The money's in America, that's where you play, mm. uh, and that's where the players want to play. Um, and, you know, the other point about that is, and we complain about the PGA Tour, rightfully so, and not doing the right thing by the game globally. They could do a lot more to enhance their own product by looking after the game globally and they could afford to do it, but they won't. If everything that's in America in the PGA Tour was here in Australia, we would be exactly the same. Yeah, correct. I mean, it, it, we used to, for the longest time, call it the US Tour. It, mm-hmm. it comes from America. It, this idea that it owes the rest of the world of golf just because it's taken everyone's best players, when it was started as an American-centric tour, is quite short-sighted. And and you've just said... Oh, I don't know, because they want a seat at the table with the it, other A hundred percent, they want bodies. to be... And those other bodies have uh, a, responsibility. a responsibility, and they, they're they burdened with that. I, un- I understand that, but Rod has just said previously about talking about the PGA Tour and not having enough money to fight this battle with the Saudis, and then you want them to spend their money on overseas things to help other tours. Now, we, I think they should, yeah. absolutely, but... This idea that they can do both. I understand that. So I think not, they've chosen the wrong one. I agree, 100%. That, but what they should have done was yeah. take some of their money and start yeah, moving it correct. all around the world. Yeah. That would have been a smarter thing. I think it's in their own interest. Like, what do you reckon? Because the, the, the level of animosity towards the PGA Tour, from players apart from anything else, but from fans around the world, certainly here in Australia, there's a massive anti PGA Tour yeah. feeling here in Australia. That can't be yeah. good for their product in the end. No, but I, I tell you what, the, I think the PGA Tour has has done enough financially to virtually halt. Can you think of a, an absolute top player now who's going to jump from the established tours onto live? I mean, it's Scotty Scheffler, those, those that, that sort of level. I mean, the, the number of the, the on enough, the check maybe. that you would have to come up with now. I think it's even it's a lot more expensive now for. Uh, for Liv to actually get the absolute best players. I, and I, I think it's almost to the point where it would be impossible. So, you know, the PGA Tour, you could argue, have done a good job in that they, they spent the money that they had to spend to get to this point. Because I, I just don't see anybody that's really, really, really good making that jump anymore. Hmm. No, they, they, they've they clearly tried to 
stem the flow in well, and that's the whole point wasn't keep the players and create a one. battle of attrition with live and uh, again I, I wrote a thing for uh, the magazine that went out last week that it's a war of attrition between these two and the people who are losing are just golf fans realistically because we're not getting to see everyone play the same places all at once and there's bands and you know it's affecting things like the Ryder Cup which are despite being between Europe and America is global. a global event and um, you know fans are the ones who are who are going to lose in this longer term for the the period that it goes on because you can't you you watch last week and you see how good it is with all the best players in one and then you turn on the Charles Schwab challenge and live golf DC and you don't get that that said, the designated events have objectively been more watchable yeah, uh, than yeah. they were, and the, the and I more watchable than any PGA Tour events in the past. Absolutely, I think even better, yeah. without those few live players, it's uh, their their strength of field's much better, and they're much more interesting tournaments. Yeah. So, why do people watch golf? Is really the question there, Huggy? Is it really the reality that there are six or seven actual needle movers in the game, and a couple of them are with live, and a couple of them are with the PGA Tour, and for the rest? It's kind of the minor placings. I mean, why do we watch? Why is the designated event, you know, better well, than the week-to-week event? I think that certainly in America, that um, and Phoenix being the, the extreme example of this, is that the vast majority of people who are actually at the tournaments, they are not there watching the golf. They don't care about the golf. They are there to wander around and be in the place where it's to, that's the place to be that day and have a few drinks and have a nice time with their friends. I, I don't think there's that many people paying close attention to what's actually going on. I mean, and Adrian's point is well made as well. I mean, until the last nine holes, does it really matter? I mean, it's long been the the cliche that stroke play only becomes interesting when it turns into match play at the end. And, uh, you know, the first 63 holes are just all about getting yourself in position, which is not that interesting to watch. Although we know the majors are compelling right from the very first shot. And I don't know what it is about the formula that's different there. But it is—it's just different. I can watch that all day long. So we all I remember enjoyed every part of Oak Hill. So you, we all remember when the Masters only showed the back nine yeah. holes, mm-hmm. and the pressure that was on them every year to increase that coverage to the point now where they have, where it's this blanket wall-to-wall coverage. You can go back now practice, and practice fairway coverage. Every shot from every player from this year's tournament. Yeah. Should you want to, it's a really interesting point. I think I've mentioned this guy before, Roger Mitchell, who's from the Are You Not Entertained podcast with Giles Morgan. It's a sports business, and they touch on golf from time. Well, golf's not his specialty, but he made this point in the discussion with Eddie Pepperell a couple of weeks ago that he can see we're heading towards a time when TV networks won't want all four days of the tournament. What they'll bid for is the last nine holes, or God forbid, even just the last four. Yeah, that's what they'll want, and that's what they want to see. You could extrapolate that to. Say football, last 20 minutes. Basketball is known as, you know, it only gets exciting in the last 10 seconds, that kind of thing. (laughs) But that's a really huge shift. I wonder if there's any truth to that, Jimmy. I'm older. I like the chess component of golf. It goes for four days, a bit like test cricket. It goes for four days. You watch it unfold. There's lots to think about and analyze over the four days. But are we approaching a generational shift where people don't care about any of that? They just want to watch the last four holes and see who wins. Uh, Yeah, I'd say so. Um, 
I'd say, I mean, people my age still love the idea of test cricket and all that sort of mm. stuff. Of The guys I grew up with when we were 18, 19 loved nothing more than summers where we didn't have jobs and guys were at uni and on holidays, not me personally, but they would sit down and just watch the cricket all day. Mm. And then you go out for a drink at night and then you'd sleep in the next morning and it started at 10.30 and it was perfect. And it's the same with the golf that they want to go out and watch it or when it's, you know, the open, sit down and they can watch it all afternoon and, and get to know the golf course and... Masters is the same and and a chance to watch a featured group. I think maybe there is a younger generation coming that don't want that, but I don't think they want live sport at all. I think they just want the highlights anyway. So it's kind of doesn't matter what you get. They just want to see the end result. I think the highlights, uh, the LPGA does an excellent job of putting together a highlights package at the end of every day, actually. And I watch it because I, I want to catch up on all of that. But I find it actually a bit of a punish to watch because yeah. there's no narrative. It's just shot to shot to shot. Yeah. And you don't really get a sense of the storyline building I, throughout the day. I think the way people consume their media in a demographic probably younger than me is you get served what you're, what everyone else likes that you're being told is the best. Yeah. So that they've already decided that of the four golf tournaments this week, this was the most exciting one. Here's what happened. I, I think there's a balance between – like how how this could be packaged up in the future is a balance between a highlights reel and an edited last nine holes or something yeah. like that. Like I always think about what's wrong with those the match things. Mm. They're um, I think they're completely unwatchable unless you've got a bunch of money on the line or something. A logo for a start. You're like it's terrible. Let's logo. don't get me started on that. But the uh, they're I think they're completely unwatchable and they become gaming events where there's a bunch of side bets and, and all sorts of lines running on them. But the, uh, the the best comparison we've got from TV from like the 70s and 80s would be those um, Peter Alice things where mm. it was um, celebrity golf, pro-celebrity golf and all those sort of things, which were fantastic. And But the key to them was that they were like edited down to an hour. Yeah. And I really think that could be the future of PGA Tour events to make them more interesting is to take that last 18 holes perhaps uh, and uh, maybe the first, you know, some highlights from the first few days and make an edited package out of it I'd, and keep it down to an hour or something like that. That could be incredibly watchable, I think. I think I think part of the issue with the things like the match goes back to what Huggy said about live stuff is it doesn't mean anything. And as opposed to where you used to get that sort of golf you're talking about, that Peter Alice thing, you weren't saturated with seeing the same golfers and all these golfers all the time. You couldn't watch them constantly. You can now watch golfers constantly throughout the year if you want to. It's the same for a lot of my friends who like basketball, like the NBA, but don't watch the 82-game regular season. They tune in now when it's playoffs time because they want to know who won and they like watching the best teams. And So that's the majors. You know, The finals, the playoffs is the majors. That's always going to be the case. There's always going to be that sort of a person who's keen to do that and will watch the whole thing. But then there's also my old man who he'll watch the golf, he'll watch the rugby, he'll watch the whatever. But the others, he kind of wants just the sports news. He just wants to know who won, how they won, and maybe see a minute or two of it. And I think we're pushing more towards that. Whether that changes the way the broadcast happens, I don't think so. I think you remain with what you've got, but you, you do what is happening more and more in America is – Parts are through streaming. Maybe it only goes on the main channel for those last nine holes. What a mess that's been. Oh, it's, like, it's a disaster. I mean, yeah. trying to watch last week in the States, talking to a few friends over there. I mean, it was on four different platforms across the week. You've got to have a 
a degree in in you know, computer science to be able know, to work out and watch it. American listeners know just how good we've got it. Oh, here. we've got it great. <laughs> it's brilliant. With, with KO in or Huggy, d- Huggy, not an Huggy advertisement, was... but we can just put that on and we get all four days. Although unfortunately, and not no, it's commercial free for yeah, some. Huggy, Huggy was tweeting about. Oh, here's another ad in the PGA, and I was sitting I there. I never going, saw one. No, I haven't seen an ad. We, it, it's been great. We got the yeah. entire PGA yeah. commercial free somehow. Yeah. I just yeah. don't, I don't get it. We have that international feed, which is at times a bit painful, but yeah, it's still worth it. Very. Yeah, I was worth almost it. heading to the airport at that point. <laughs> yeah, indeed. What do you reckon about all that hugging? We're of a certain genre. Just to make the point that there's really only one Sean Connery and Lee Trevino, so you can't recreate that Peter Alice Price celebrity golf because yeah. that's thought, about as see, good as I, it gets. How good were those, though? Yeah, I attended that uh, one day of that in person, that pro celebrity golf, which which was great, a uh, great product, as you say, once it made it to television. But they only there was nine whole matches, and it took them maybe five hours. Yeah, to yeah. record what, and the, the the gap between shots w- was extraordinary. You know, Lee Trevino would hit a drive up the middle and then it would be 25 minutes before he hit his approach shot, before they got the cameras in the right place and all the rest of it. I mean, totally unwatchable. That's an extreme example of what you were just talking about. And But the product at the end w- was was terrific to watch. But the gap between the two, the reality and the, <laughs> the, the, the end product was huge. And it know. stands up to re-watching as well somehow. Why I just, yeah. Again and again. But uh, oh, They picked the right personalities, I think, for those two. I mean, Bernhard Langer yeah. would not have been a great pro celebrity golf contestant, you can't yeah. think, whereas Lee Trevino was, and Seve were it's, perfect for it, it. It's also harder to get those guys because they're all now worth so much more money. That's exactly right. They don't get out of bed yeah, for I nothing. Mean, yeah, I mean, look at – you're not going to get the Sean Connery of, of today to play in something like that. Probably. You're not going to get the Lee Trevino no, of today exactly to play right. in something like that. No, no, exactly. Yeah. Well, you might get some of them who – might get the actual Lee Trevino to turn up <laughs> – <laughs> I'd still watch that. So would I. Absolutely, so would I. Every time he pops up at that father-son thing, you know, giving Charlie Woods a lesson, he's he's by far the most entertaining person on that property all week, bar none. Yeah. Uh, And he was on, um, it popped up again on Twitter, that that shot that Seve hit on the fifth hole at St. Andrews Mm -hmm. with Trevino, the commentary from Trevino. Yeah. You know, a touch of class, baby. Touch of class. I mean, you could just watch that over and over and over again. You know. Yeah. What does it all mean for the future? Do you reckon, Huggy? Do you reckon golf can survive this? Can golf be packaged up the way these other sports can, the way Logue's talking about, and survive? Well, I think it's got to be part of the mix. Um, I think your analogy with the Test cricket was is struck a chord with me. I mean, I. I'm no great aficionado on cricket, but I'd like to watch. I I get the the test cricket is the you know the subtlety of it. Um, you know it's the same as baseball in America, where they move in a, a fielder just a few yards it makes a huge difference to you know where the bowler's going to bowl the ball and then where the what the batter's going to do and all the rest of it. It's very different. I mean, there's none of that. It seems to me watching the the Big Bash or the T20 or whatever. It's just an absolute slog. And it's the the subtlety of the game is lost, and the, the it seems to me there's got to be room for all of that across the spectrum uh, in golf as well, and cricket's a good example of it. Yeah, that's I I agree with that. That there's there's probably a market for something equivalent to T Twenty in golf, but that you'll still have the people who want to watch the longer form and the you know original mm-hmm. form. You can kind of argue, but um, we haven't found that lives not T Twenty golf. Mm. It's not even close. No, so they've tried the six hole matches. They've tried all sorts of. Yeah, things, we you know, we haven't we haven't hit that yet. But there's always going to be that kind of. Um, but like but to 
you know, talking about test cricket, a day at the test cricket is great fun. Uh, a day at the baseball is great fun. I would argue both are better products now watching on TV. And I would say watching a stroke play golf tournament, if you're just trying to watch what's happening and how it happens, mm-hmm. is better on TV. Yeah, I think that's you're right. common yeah. with all these things. Is yeah. they are better done at home um, because you can see everything. You can also kind of tune in and out and leave it on throughout the day and all that sort of Not stuff. Not the least that to do with the quality of TV and speakers and all the actual Absolutely. equipment itself and, and the production values and and the you know demonstrations of you know might be you know flight tracking in golf, but it's different things in in cricket and all that sort of stuff. It's well, a bit of the nice thing about Test cricket and golf, I think, for that matter, is that. That's not. It's not a. You don't have to make a choice between those two experiences. Test cricket. When it comes into town, you can go to one day. Yeah. Correct. And you know, experience the whole day there, and then watch the enjoy the rest of it from home. Correct. I mean, I being in America at this time last year, taking my old man to Fenway Park to watch the Red Sox play. It was all about the experience of the day. It was walking down from downtown Boston and going down and getting, you know, getting my shirt and going, getting a beer and a hot dog and sitting. One of the hot dogs. Mm. Talk, talk to me about the hot Fenway dogs. Frank. Talk, okay. It's disgusting. I, they, like the way, <laughs> the fact that people eat good, those. Good, disgusting. Or no, I, I don't know. I didn't eat one this time. My old man. It was his birthday, and he said, "You're going to get me a hot dog." And I was like, "You want a hot dog out of that guy's thing? He's been carrying around in his waist for an hour and a half. You go for your life." But he then hoes into it and goes, "This isn't very good." What, what do you expect? But <laughs> an absolute shock. It, the whole thing was about the experience. We sat right down in the you know, first row on the warning track to get all that. And then he's kind of asking me about how the game goes. And I said, we're not in the best spot for me to kind of help explain it to you. It would be much easier if we were sitting up high and we can point out things mm. because we're, this is experience day. So I think that's kind of the same with what, what golf is. Well, that's, that's all especially true, I think, in the, the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup. I mean, I tell people who who want to go and see the Ryder Cup, I says, by all means, go for a day, experience the, the you know, the vibe and the, the atmosphere and all the rest of it. It's terrific. But don't go back. Watch the rest of it on television because it's a television event. Yeah. I mean, you can't, you cannot watch the Ryder Cup properly in person. No. And that's... Because every game means the same and you're only watching one. So, and there's an... In the singles, there's 11 others that mean just as much, and you're not seeing any of that. You can't play team captain from on the ground either. <laughs> yeah. Like that's yeah. all the mistakes they're <laughs> no, That's the great yeah. thing about the Ryder Cup. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like when you're watching it and you've got that overview. I don't know why the captains don't sit back in a, in a monitor and let their vice captains go out yeah. on the course. The, the captains should be back in a, like, you know, directing traffic from a studio somewhere. <laughs> it's, that's, that's really true of the early rounds of a live event, too. Because of the shotgun start, they're all out there at once. Right. So you can't get a sense of what's actually happening. Trying to cover a live golf tournament from a genuine golf perspective. Nightmare. Nightmare. And, and you know, Adelaide is an example. There was a lot of people. We couldn't get um, inside the ropes access easily. So you couldn't actually move from group, you know, with the group easily and all that sort of stuff. So actually writing a golf story there was exceptionally difficult. It kind of felt like it was by design. Thank goodness nobody cares. Yeah, that's, that's right. <laughs> right. Huggy, that's let's, very true. <laughs> let's finish up. This is a question for everybody, but I'll start with you. We have devoted way more hours on this podcast than I ever envisaged to talking about the Live and PGA Tour thing and, you know, professional golf more broadly. It's not the most important part of golf, though, is it? And this past year in particular, professional golf has sort of overtaken everything because of this Live and PGA Tour. The truth about golf is the most important stuff is the grassroots stuff, isn't it? And it's kind of been overshadowed in a big way this last year or two, and in a way that's not helpful outside of golf circles. Non-golfers have never had a great image of golf, 
And I don't think this has helped at all. We're no, I mean, uh, my kids are the two of them. They're, they're not interested in golf at all. So they're perfect examples of how they, they roll their eyes at the stuff. When they ask me, well, what have you been doing? What's been happening? And I tell them, and they just kind of shake their head and, and roll their eyes. I mean, it's just, it doesn't seem to, and it, their argument is well made. I mean, so what? That's not important. Why do you care about that? It's Golf gets all wrapped up in stuff that, just seems so trivial to the outside world. And if you actually take a step outside and look at some of the, you know, likes of the rules stuff and, you know, why, why is you know, why is somebody disqualified because they, you know, they haven't written their name in the right part of a piece of paper and stuff like that. That that kind of stuff just has always passed the, the general public by. And as I say, my kids, they, they burst out laughing at some of the stuff I tell them. And they just, they think it's a strange world that full of strange people like me. Yeah. How do we get them back, Huggy? It's the real question, yeah. isn't it, Jimmy? At the end of the day, this is all just technically a showcase for the game. Yeah. Uh, it's not the important stuff, though, is it? Yet we're so obsessed with it. It's not. We're our own worst enemies. Well, we are. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, it, I'm as guilty as anybody yeah, else. Yeah, we all are because it's what's interesting to us, but it's also what generates conversation and that's what all of our job bar Logue is to do, who, whatever his <laughs> job is. Um, but it's it's quite bizarre when you do take a moment to step back and look at it and talk. And I spend a lot of my time with non-golfers because I've been around golf my whole life and the last thing I want to do in my spare time <laughs> is talk about You've golf. You've met enough of us. Yeah, I've been around this yeah. too long. <laughs> but yeah. we won't probably go into it in depth, but it kind of, I think, has showcased how ridiculous this level is that we are in at the moment in that Claude Harmon interview with Adam Shupak, I think it was, from Golf Week, which is wide-ranging and he hammers everything and everything. Adam Shupak does a great job. But that Claude Harmon draws a line, and, and Claude Harmon had a lot of stuff that I think was worthwhile saying and interesting, but he says, and I'll use the exact quote, the Golf Channel tried to make out like he, talking about Phil Mickelson, was literally Joseph Mengel. When you stand outside of golf and you look back in at this thing that's going on right now and you hear something like that, it makes the game look ridiculous. It makes us, it's embarrassing to draw that level of comparison about something so trivial. And that is what kind of at times makes you step back and go, this is beyond a joke now. Um it's it's not the important stuff. Golf is golf at the professional level isn't the most important thing. It's what pays my bills or attempts to pay my bills. Um, but it is not the important stuff. And we we all push far too much. Some of us, it's our job. But um, I think everyone in golf pushes too much on it that now club golf is talking about live and PGA Tour and which side you fall on, which shouldn't matter. That you shouldn't show up on a Saturday to play your members comp and have a conversation about whether you think Saudi money's okay or whether you think Phil Mickelson's the greatest golfer of all time or whatever, you should just show up and play. And, and you know, interestingly, numbers were released by Golf Australia yesterday for their latest um, participation report, which has embraced their all golf is golf thing, and the numbers are still up post-COVID. So there is this positive, and I wonder if golf being in the mainstream media helps that or hinders it. But in Australia, at least, the, the real part of golf – you know, grassroots, public, private, all that golf is actually thriving. 
I think, personally, in spite of what's going on in the showcase version. Yeah, indeed. Like, this brings us right back neatly to Denmark and what you would have seen over there. It's an interesting case study. Denmark is probably not as strong a golf nation as perhaps Australia, but that's the important stuff, isn't it? And what Denmark are doing in terms of course care and the way they set up their course is a very different sort of thing to what we've got here. Mm. That's the stuff that matters, isn't it? Not whether Brooks Kepka plays for Liv or over on the PGA Tour. Yeah, that's 99.99% of golf still, isn't it? And uh, I think there's a lot to learn from that. Unfortunately, and you know, this goes to this media coverage of golf and the average person's perception of golf, they see, and I ranted about this in another podcast, of course, but the they see Oak Hill on TV and they see that hyper green grass and is manicured turf from every from the boundary fence to the other boundary fence, way away from the playing areas, and all of the inputs that that requires with and and you know the hard work of the greenkeepers that must be acknowledged there, but the enormous water and chemical inputs that that requires stands in stark contrast to what I see in Denmark, where they've for, for the last decade or so they've been actively trying to reduce their chemical usage. And they've got it down now to less a fraction of one percent of what it was originally. They are going to outlaw it completely, are they not? Isn't I, that the point? Believe, it's, like, it's already a fraction of one percent of what they have used in the past, and uh, they like do things like hand weed. But they also have very small um, ground staff. Even the best courses in Denmark have very small staff, um, and they produce fantastic playing surfaces and uh, a great golf experience um, and naturalized rough and. And it's it's how golf should be. There's there's actually there's a story on the Golf Australia website at the moment that uh, Brendan James wrote about the rise of public golf, particularly focused on some courses in Victoria um, that are run by management groups that have worked with councils about regenerating with sustainable guidelines and stuff in place. And it's such a great sign to see councils reinvesting in golf facilities yes. because golf can prove itself like it does in Denmark to be sustainable right. and to be of benefit and you know, keep things alive like it does with sandbelt clubs where there's, you know, plants that are only on golf courses. Yeah. And yeah. with few exceptions, the sandbelt being one of them, generally speaking, the sandbelt, but it's usually public courses that uh, Absolutely. carry the burden for that. Yeah. Um, and Sometimes by accident, it just grows. Yeah, true. <laughs> true. <laughs> yeah. So it's not um, but And it's public courses that need protecting because yeah. you can't rely on the Oak Hills of the world to set a good example. No. Um, I've, I feel like you should be able to rely on the USGA to host their events and PGA to host their events at a place that sets a good example. I loved Oak Hill. I thought it was fantastic. Great test of golf and, you know, a spectacular venue, but I don't think it sets few, the right. A few boxes that weren't ticked. Yeah. It yeah. Just, it's, it's not a great showcase for golf in general to non-golfers, which is, I think, a lot of what we talk about here and all that live discussion and everything. I think we're trying to pass all of that professional golf discussion through the lens of how the media presents it to the rest of the world. That's kind of, I think, what we try to do in this podcast. I'm and not sure. Are we are trying to do anything on this podcast. <laughs> I've never tried to do it. It feels like an aimless shambles to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting question to ask. What, you know, what? Huggy, been great to have you on, mate. Thank you for your uh, contribution. It's always good to uh, to catch up with you. My pleasure. Before Huggy goes, can can I have confirmed that you're wearing a Hibernian FC shirt? Um, it's basically the equivalent. It's actually in a, it is made by Adidas, but yes, it's my my team who just earlier this evening beat Celtic four two. By the yeah. way, just so you know, exactly. You know? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do your kids think about that? I bet you they don't wear Adidas if you do. <laughs> they, uh, well, they, they used to humour me, but they, they would go to a couple of games a season just to keep me happy. But the, that that 
that long ago disappeared. <laughs> so it's not official merchandise that you're saying, is that? It's not, no. No, that's okay. far too expensive. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> good on you. <laughs> Thank you, Huggy. <laughs> great to have you along. Jimmy, good to have you uh, in Thank studio you, as well. And well done over the O'Kill coverage. Thank you. Time. And what a, what a joy to have Logue back in. You know, oh, well, in the pillar, person. The pillar the pillar. Holds the whole thing. Yeah. Thanks, Logue. Appreciate you coming along, mate. No, we really do. We've got to start, obviously, <laughs> thanking him more profusely. It's been fabulous to have you here. Thank you. Pleasure. Episode 144, 44. I think. All done and dusted. We'll be back again next week, if Logue permits, mm-hmm. <laughs> to do it all again here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.